Well, welcome to you all. I'm Alex Jones. I'm director of the Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy. And uh, it is my pleasure today to have as our guest Maria Pinoyosa. Is that a correct pronunciation? No. <laughs> <laughs> what is the correct pronunciation? If you were saying it and you don't speak Spanish, you would say Maria Inahosa. And I would say Maria Inahosa. I tend to pronounce H's, I guess that's the problem. Uh, but in any event, we're very glad to have Maria with us. She is the, uh, the anchor and managing editor of NPR's Latino USA, but, uh, and that is a very important um, vehicle for giving voice to the Hispanic experience in uh, Latino experience in, in this country. But she has been doing groundbreaking journalism in the area of, uh, of ethnic uh, sort of sensibility and awareness for many years, from at CNN and uh, MGBH and elsewhere. Uh, it's something that is, uh, you know, that has marked her work and given it great distinction. She's won many awards, Emmys and so forth. Um, but I think that there has never been a time, oddly enough, when these kinds of ethnic uh, aspects of all of the aspects of American life are, are more on the table. And we were just talking a few moments ago about the, uh, the implications of what has been happening in Florida and that very controversial story. Uh, I'm very glad to have you with us, Maria. Welcome, and uh, we're eager to hear what you have to say. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's great to be here, everyone. Thanks for the great weather. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm really excited because I have my son with me today. This is my son. Um, and I know he's going to be like, oh, no, don't. But the truth is, is that... His full name is Raúl Ariel Jesús de Todos Los Santos Pérez Hinojosa. I can say that. <laughs> so he actually probably will not have a future in television journalism, although you never know. John Stewart may be hiring. Um, and he loves John Stewart. But it's really my, my honor to be here with all of you taking time out of your busy schedules to come in and talk. Um, and I love the format that it's a very short, a relatively short presentation that I'm going to give. And then it's mostly about the conversation, so um, I'm really appreciative of that. Um, so I don't know if you know the news out of Pima, Pima County, or Pima County, um, Arizona this morning. Is it Pima? Pima. Yep. Pima. Um, that's great. I'm glad that you know. Um, well, it's either Pima or Pinal. There's a couple of things so going There's no H in it? No. <laughs> so P-I-M-A or P-I-M-A-L or P-I-N-A-L. So Pinal is a different county than Pima. But There's two different Pima. counties, but they're both okay. in, they're in the... So it's not just my mind playing tricks on No, it isn't. <laughs> so um, very early this morning, um, I received an email from my um, senior producer of Latino USA um, and just said, um, what the H-E double hockey stick is going on, which I was like, what? Because it was 6 o'clock in the morning, and then I read this, and overnight, and you'll help me if I get any facts incorrect, because um, I read it and then took off for the rest of the day. Um, but basically, overnight, um, in Arizona, uh, men dressed in camouflage, I think all men, maybe not, maybe some <coughs> um, assaulted a van, 
um, that was driving allegedly undocumented immigrants <coughs> in an area where undocumented immigrants cross. And, um, and two men were killed. Um, and so for me, you know, to wake up in the morning and be thinking about this, this conversation and think um, on the heels of Trayvon Martin, on the heels of you know, the shooting of black men in, in Oklahoma, um, to just think, so we have people who are going out in our country and, and hunting other people every night. And authorities have to know about this. I'm sure they know about this. But then in effect, our authorities are doing the same thing. So in one case, and I'm, I'm being provocative here, on the one hand, we have people who are going out with assault weapons and shooting vans at people who they believe are coming into this country without papers. And um, on the other hand, you have essentially um, an acknowledgement that that happens on the part of government institutions, part of the Department of Homeland Security, tied to immigration <coughs> customs enforcement, where every night, um, in fact right now, they are preparing for who they're going to detain tomorrow. And they will be going out at about 4 o'clock in the morning, and they will be knocking on doors of people, um, uh, and they will be saying, in fact, at that precise moment when that happens, questions of due process should be primary, because one of the core issues that I'm concerned about is everybody always, as a journalist, they always say, oh, you have such an agenda. You have such an agenda. You have a Latino agenda. You have an immigrant agenda. You have a feminist agenda. You have such an agenda. And it's like, no, actually, I don't. What concerns me is the fact that some of the core values that we have in this country are being challenged. So, for example, when officials appear at your door in these fugitive operations, for example, by Immigration Customs Enforcement, they appear wearing uniforms that say police everywhere. Police, 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 police on the back. And in, in small letters below it says ICE. They are not police. They are immigration agents. When they knock on the door, they don't say, uh, we are here representing ICE, we are here looking for so-and-so, we are here to do this, you have the right to not open the door, etc. Et they don't say that. They knock on the door at 6 o'clock in the morning, they wake you up, and you have nine men who are fully armed with SWAT gear, and they say, uh, we have to talk to you about something. Maybe it would be better if we did this indoors so your neighbors don't see and at that moment, you invite the officials in, and then they are able to request identification from everybody in that um, home. What concerns me is that, how do we as Americans feel about the fact that, that that can happen in our country? It took a long time to get the Miranda warnings um, legally declared. Why do we not have the same condition when we're talking about immigrants? Um, from there, you know, the process of witnessing what we did, for example, in the, in the Frontline documentary, and the theme of this conversation, which is the detention deportation of immigrants and what it's doing to American society. Um, I was very concerned when we did the Frontline because I knew that I was going to get attacked, and I did. Um, oh, she was really tough on the Obama administration. I love that one. 
because that's a weird kind of attack. But the other attacks were, um, she's so soft on those immigrants. And part of the problem is that, you know, as a journalist, when you hear that kind of stuff, it really sits, it, it, it's a problem for you. You don't want to be accused of being biased. And when I spoke to my frontline producers, they kind of talked me down from feeling like I had been exposed and criticized, but even within PBS. Um, and they said, you know, if Edward R. Murrow, when he did Harvest of Shame, there was not the request that he do another half hour giving the perspective from the growers and the agricultural growers. Because what, what he had uncovered there was an injustice. And at the core of the work of journalism should be that, right? To shine a light. And yet, somehow, there is the assumption that because we do that, or because someone like me does that, then I have an agenda. To me, it's problematic. Because essentially, what we're talking about is core American values that are being eroded in front of us. And the question for us as journalists is, what do we do? It's a very scary time to be a journalist. I'm sure you all talk about this. I don't want to be a downer, sorry. Um, but the reality is that this is a really tough time for American journalists and for journalists across the country. It's also an exciting time. I get that. I'm part of that. I created my own nonprofit. You know, I'm doing it. It's rock and roll. But for people who are working within the mainstream journalism, not a time that you're going to be banging on your editor's door and saying, I want to cover that story. When your editor is saying, eh, that story is not going to do a lot for us in terms of ratings, or et cetera, et cetera. Journalists who are hoping that they don't lose their job are not going to be battling for these stories. So economic downturn in the American economy affects all of us as news consumers. Um, finally, I want to kind of bring it back to, I do believe that we're living in a historic moment, um, although um, it seems like we've been kind of going through this for, I don't know, all of my adult life. Um, you would hope that our country would kind of really realize who we are more honestly. Um, I mean, the numbers, the demographic numbers share, show it all. My favorite number these days, just because it's one of those numbers that a lot of people don't know, is 43%. That's the percentage of demographic growth of Latinos in the United States in the last census which means that it's going to be probably 50 or 53% doubling. That means all of us have to realize that what is happening in our country, what is happening to Latinos, in fact, the, the slogan of Latino USA, if it affects Latinos, it affects all of us, could not be more true. Um, and so when you talk about these core values of who we represent, I do think that that the power of democratic resistance and new leadership is actually what is a fascinating thing to watch and report on too. I think as you see what's happening with young dream activists losing fear, um, I think when you see what's happening with um, Libro Traficante, the movement to smuggle books back into Arizona because books have been banned and um, ethnic studies have been banned, and now we hear that perhaps at the college level will also there will be an attempt to ban. Um, 
these burgeoning movements that, again, are not Latino-oriented. They really are the next generation. One of my favorite moments was meeting an African immigrant from Ghana studying in Syracuse, who is undocumented, and the first true identity that he has in this country is identifying with fellow dream activist students who look nothing like him. <coughs> That's his identity reference. Um, these new, truly diverse groups that are coming from the youth um, are going to be leading the conversation in what democracy looks like and feels like. I mean, I hope so. That's my dream. That's what I'm hoping all of you end up doing because given the way things are going in our country with just today's newspaper, you know, the story of the Marlins, free speech, um, you know, the Trayvon Martin, the Oklahoma shooters, um, this case in Pima, Pima, Pinal County, Arizona, all of it is it's a constant affront to us. Apart from the fact that, you know, I'm going to be um, touched inappropriately when I go to the airport. I mean, it's true. And if my son were to be arrested as a young man of color growing up in New York City, he cannot be strip searched. <laughs> what happened? What's happened? So um, I'll leave it there for now. Um, and I thank you for, for, for listening and for being engaged. Thank you. Let me, um, <clears throat> let me begin the questioning with a few things, and then we'll open it up to all of you. <coughs> I want to go back to your journalistic uh, concern about your, your piece and your perspective being undermined by the idea that you are effectively, you know, cooking the books in favor of an agenda. One of the, one of the <coughs> fundamental disputes in, in journalism in America now is whether we have given up on the idea of objective reporting. We have given up on the idea that, that the best kind of reporting, the most persuasive, ultimately persuasive kind of reporting, is reporting that is not agenda-driven, but it is uh, you know, factual, can be perceived as genuinely fair, that gives the other side if there is another side, and therefore um, has the power, in theory anyway, to persuade people who don't agree with you about something. Uh, whereas the other argument says there's always an agenda, it's more honest and frank to be upfront about the agenda, to you know, invest advocacy if you feel it into your journalistic work. And the, the, the downside of, the upside of that is that it can be more passionate, it can be more, um, it can make a, you know, a, a persuasively, you know, powerful case. But the downside is that you can find yourself preaching to the converted and not be able to persuade anyone because your point of view can be discounted by people who don't agree with you because you didn't represent something more objective. Where do you find yourself now? You've been at this game a long time. Where do you find this yourself in your own work about what you're aspiring to in this in this sense? Um, you know, the television pilot that we're working on uh, for my own primetime series uh, on PBS right now is called America by the Numbers. 
because um, we actually want to start our stories by looking at numbers, by looking at hard facts, precisely as a way to get away from the, you know, the agenda issue, is to just say, okay, well then let's just start with numbers. Um, and so the pilot um, is based in Clarkston, Georgia, which by the numbers, statistically, is one of the most diverse places in the United States of America. Um, and it's just south of Atlanta because it was a, a refugee relocation site. Um, and then we, we go into the story actually using animation because there are some stories that are difficult to tell in television and so we wanted to be able to tell them and so we're using animation which is very different for, um, for a straight journalist uh, in the mainstream media. Um, so I feel that more than ever I have to be able to um, base my journalism on facts. That's what I did at now on PBS as a senior correspondent doing investigative work. It was all fact-based journalism. And I do think that that is the strongest place that we can live. I think that that's what the Frontline documentary did. But sometimes, um, and, and if, you, if you take to the core value of, of what a journalist, which to me a journalist is to um, hold the powerful accountable, to shine light, to give voice to the voiceless, and to tell untold stories. And actually to make people feel something, that is, I do have that agenda. I do want to, people to feel something. And maybe that's not, so I was saying that if you, if you have a, a desire to make people feel something, you know, perhaps that's a little bit more wishy-washy, but I'm being honest with you, I, I do want to make people feel. I also think that, so if you, if you ask me to come down like on one side or the other, I am probably more on the side that objective journalism does not exist, that you want to do fair journalism, absolutely, um, fact-based journalism, um, but we all have a different experience. So. You know, when I had to write a commentary for Walter Cronkite, um, I remember somebody who knew me, one of my seniors who knew me, read it and he was like, you can't say that, Walter Cronkite would never say that. And I said, I think it's really well written because I actually wrote it um, because I'm a journalist. I, if I have to write for Walter Cronkite, I'm gonna write for Walter Cronkite. He had his own perception of, of me. And so what I said is, take this piece and show it to somebody who knows nothing about me and read it one of the senior people from the CBS Evening News, and they read it, and they were like, yeah, this is great. Walter will read it, no problem. So other people have their own biases of how they interpret who I may be, or who another journalist may be. So it is a complicated issue. It is one that I'm always, always battling. I'm always having to defend myself all the time, and honestly, it gets really tiring. Um, so I'm not, I'm, so what I'm saying is, is that, I think you have to you have to acknowledge that difference of perspective exists, and you have to do your best to be fact based and to give representation to as many voices as you possibly can. I would say, again, let me let me frame the question slightly differently. Which do you think is more effective at changing minds and changing reality? I guess one thing you have to weigh would be the power of potentially motivating people who are of like mind, 
versus the power of, of shaming people who are of a different mind, but persuading them because they perceive what you're doing as objective reporting in a way that does not sort of stack the deck. I'll give you an example of what I mean. The Civil Rights Movement was uh, very heavily you know, influenced by the media coverage of it. But it was the media coverage that showed, you know, the talk, the police dogs attacking, and it was a it was a form of, uh, of of very powerful advocacy as it turned out. But it was not framed as advocacy. It was framed as this is what's happening to these people, and it was at the same time motivated by advocacy. But the power of it was that people believed that it was reality, and that people who were uh, inclined to stand by the by the side, or might be were persuadable. And I mean, we're talking about the persuadable people came to view reality as something other than what they thought. Another example to me is the Iraq War. When the Iraq War started, <coughs> public opinion in this country was heavily in favor of it. What changed over time was not the pundits, the people who were making advocacy arguments for and against the war really never changed their minds. But what changed was that the reporting that was done from Iraq made people come to believe that what they'd been told was not the truth, that the reality or a closer version of reality was something that was more reflected in the news media's version of what was going on there that was rooted in a kind of traditional reporting that was fact-based and was you know, sort of news of verification as opposed to advocacy. This is not a simple question. I'm not trying to, 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 to suggest it is. But I wonder, given your journalistic chops, which are as good as it gets, where do you see the persuasive power? Well, you know, in terms of Iraq, I, I would actually say that <clears throat> it took a long time to get that realistic picture of what was happening. Um, and why did that happen? Why were there, why was this um, a war that was taking place at a time when we have access to more cameras and more, um, you know, technical, <coughs> technological advancement, and yet most people actually didn't have a clue of what that war looked like and have more of a clue of what Vietnam looks like from the front lines and even from, I mean, except for um, the Hurt Locker, I suppose, that literally took you inside the, the body armor but that took a very long time. Why? Why was the mainstream media so slow? Um, well, the mainstream media didn't have access to it until we went there. I mean, we were not in Iraq. I guess what I, the, the, I'm pushing back a little bit because I think that the question is so can go much more complex even because, you know, at a time when I was working in the mainstream media at CNN, trying to get stories about, um, let's say, mm, we did one of the first stories about women who were wounded in combat. Trying to get that on the air was a problem because they perceived that this was not going to be good for their ratings at a time when CNN was in a ratings battle. How does that play into the whole notion of objectivity? When I you would have say that it, it, it strikes me as very bad editing. Exactly. But then, but then the entire country as a, as a, as a result. Well, like as a result, uh, ends up you know basically being impacted. But to your question, do I think that it's easier to convince people with whom we don't share any uh, perspective 
by giving them facts and telling them the story and, and letting them decide, yeah, I do think that that's effective. Well, I mean, but do I think it's also important for somebody to understand that I, as a journalist, may have a different perspective on something, a different story, a unique perspective that is as equally American as their perspective, even though I wasn't born in this country, I became an American citizen by choice. Yeah. My sense is that with this, this program that you're talking about, your audience, as far as you're concerned, is going to be with the Latino audience, but it's going to be a much broader audience than that. Which program? You mean Latino USA or the Frontline? The, the Frontline <laughs> issue. The one you're talking about, you're, you're getting ready to start with facts. Oh, 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 America by the Numbers? Yeah. Do I, and you said I perceive it as... My sense is that you want the audience for that to be a, you know, a universal American audience. Absolutely. Completely. Not just a no, focus on a Latino absolutely. audience. Absolutely. And so that is, I guess, the context in which I was asking the question. Because I think you're exactly right. You have, you have, you present yourself a Latino woman who is a distinguished journalist, who has a perspective, uh, who has a voice, and so what you say carries weight. The question is how you frame your journalism and how you look at the audience that you're trying to reach and, and how you sort of then focus your journalistic efforts in that in that kind of way. I don't want to take up all this time. This was a this is a very interesting this is a profound question I believe for, for, for journalism. And I it's think and, 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 and as we say in, in Portuguese, which is it's a it's a game of always moving the hips. It is a delicate dance. Um, and it's a complicated one. Let me invite students to be the first uh, questioners. Yes. Um, thank you so much for being here. My name is Chris Gustafson. I'm a student at the Kennedy School. I'm also the uh, co-chair of the Hispanic Caucus at the school. Um, my question, I, before I came here, I, was, I actually worked in the Arizona legislature um, the session prior to SB 1070. And what I'm wondering is that this, this legislation, as awful as it was, and you know, I consider this to be the fundamental, like this question of the very existence of Hispanics in this country, this legislation. What, it had been around for at least six sessions prior to actually passing. And I'm wondering, why do you think the media never really talked about it until it was on the verge of actually becoming <coughs> when they could have had a better ability to influence the public debate on the issue? Is this the media in, in Arizona or no, just in national media? Well, yeah, because it's hard for me to talk about the media in Arizona. No, I was I talking about it. I think that, just the, I mean, Huffington I think in general, there. well, <coughs> I think in general there is a perception in the mainstream media um, that immigration um, as, a, as a beat is problematic. I think that, and I'm generalizing, please forgive me, this is, it's hard to do this in this context, but you know, we've got 30 minutes left, so I'm going to take a little bit of leeway. Um, I think that there is a a sense that it's a story that doesn't go anywhere, it's never resolved, it's divisive, um, perhaps, um, you know, there is increasingly in the mainstream media an awareness of that 43% percentage number that I'm talking about, but not necessarily, and so therefore 
does it involve Latinos? Well, if they're a small element of the Arizona population or in 2006, you know, was smaller. I mean, obviously that number itself, the very existence of, you know, the demographic change in Arizona is fascinating. Um, but I have a very ineloquent term that I've been using because I haven't been able to come up with a more eloquent one. Eloquent one. And it's called um, head in the sandness. Because I feel like a lot of, of smart journalists have their heads in the sand in relation to this particular issue. Um, and I think that that, um, you know, for 25 years, as Alex says, I've been covering this story. You would think that in 25 years you would have a story that is actually moving towards some place. And we've actually regressed. Or, I suppose, is the Supreme Court considering SB 1070 an advancement? What? I, I don't think so. And yet that's where we are. So, um, so and, and I, do, I do point fingers at the mainstream media because they, the they, again, hard to zero in, but, you know, Lou Dobbs was given a platform. <clears throat> Why? He was given a platform because CNN wanted to make more money. I think some of you may not even be aware <coughs> of what Marie is talking about. The Lou Dobbs. He's been off, the, off CNN for a while, but his program, which started off as a business news program, uh, became a kind of hysterical you know, railing against uh, against Hispanic immigrants, immigrants. Yeah. and it was very, very weird. I mean, he's yeah. been off the air now. Yeah, but basically while, but they they did. I take it, your point. Yeah, they basically did that. The only reason was and it to, wasn't ratings thing. Of course. It was just about making money and trying to make more money and compete with Fox. Let, let me ask you before we leave this gentleman here: What percentage of the population of Arizona is Hispanic? Twenty nine. So why would why would a state with that many that with that kind of an Hispanic population and certainly at least some other people who who are sympathetic have passed these kinds of laws without penalty to the people who uh, who've done it? I think well I think there's a lot of factors. Well, one the one concession I will make is Arizona is actually the easy. In terms of where illegal immigrants come into this country, or like illegal undocumented immigrants come into this country, Arizona is the place because every other, <coughs> New Mexico's border, small Texas has a river, California is fairly easy to secure relatively, and Arizona's pretty poor. So there is a lot of illegal immigration trafficking through there. But I think a lot of it has to do with the people who, the people who come into Arizona, they tend to be leaving the Northeast or the Midwest from because they view it as either too liberal or too much taxes, so they come to Arizona as a haven. So you get that kind of mentality of the people who go there. Um, you have this fear because things have changed over time. Um, you know, the, 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 the Hispanic population has grown exponentially in the past 20 years. Um, and you have, and quite frankly, you have Hispanic and Latino political officials who are so concerned about keeping their pot that they want to centralize their own little power, that they're not willing to spread it out to where Hispanics would have to be. Like, for, in, for example, we have nine Hispanic 
legislative districts. That's it. And to make those as Hispanic as possible, all the surrounding districts become much more conservative and Republican. So you have, you know, we elect Hispanics, but we can't ever get a critical mass of people who are like-minded in Hispanics. And I think it's a failure. Um, and then you know, Russell Pierce, you know, whenever you have these primaries in small areas, you can get people who have these extreme views. They kind of proliferate off each other. Now he he is the litmus test in Arizona. Now, if you're a Republican, if you're not with Russell Pierce, then you're not considered. I mean, he is considered the barometer for which you're a moderate or a real Republican in the state. Yes. Uh, my name is Octavio. I'm a first-year policy student from Los Angeles, California. Particularly, I'm interested in immigration policy, which is why I came to the Kennedy School. There's a great moment in your documentary where you are interviewing Cecilia Munoz. And there are moments where she clearly is visibly uncomfortable answering your questions, defending a policy that she knows as an advocate, she knows uh, hurts the Latino community. I'm interested in changing immigration policy, but I discounted the thought of working in the executive branch because I am uncomfortable with the thought of being put in a position like Cecilia Munoz in your documentary to defend a policy that I know is hurting my community. Do you have any thoughts on how to reconcile those feelings? Is there a place for Latinos in the executive branch when we know it's this particular administration has been relatively hostile to the Latino community? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, guys, kind of, you know, the, the big question at the front and now this one. Um, You're at Harvard for pizza. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, you know, yes, I mean, whoever, and, and see, it's, uh, and I appreciate what you're saying in terms of, of being aware of the Latino community, I understand that, but the fact is, is that what's happening in terms of the immigration policy, or lack thereof, is that it's actually impacting beyond just the Latino community. It's so, um, and there's a lot of shame that goes along with this. So yes, one in four Latinos knows someone who has been detained or deported, but there are many stories, including Obama's own uncle, um, who has been um, detained, and I don't know if he has been deported, but um, uh, so it's affecting all of us. I mean, there are families out there that have been ripped apart who are not Latinos. Um, I do think that, um, and certainly in the process of working a year in the document, working a year to make the documentary, um, getting deeper into NGOs and how they work along with government um, officials, I think you do have to have people on every side. Um, to be clear, we asked for an interview with the president. We did not ask for an interview with Cecilia Munoz. Um, and then we asked for an interview with Janet Napolitano, and we did not get that interview. And they asked Cecilia Munoz to do the interview. So, um, I, um, I, I think that we have to have people in every possible element but I think that there also has to be a level of honesty. Um, and this issue is incredibly complicated. How this happened starting in 1996 with those immigration laws that were signed into, into law by President Clinton um, to the post 9-11 reality. You have to have somebody within the, um, the executive branch, if you will, that also has the capacity to say, okay, I've looked at this and we have a problem. Houston, we have a big problem because our country is now the country that has 
is holding the largest population of civilly detained people in the world. In the world. What does that mean? And some of you are like, okay, what is she talking about civil detainees? And I don't fault you if you don't immediately get it, because it's complicated. We're not talking about criminal folks. Everyone who is detained under immigration proceedings, regardless of if they have committed a crime in the past, are being held in civilian detention. It's a very different concept. And in our country, we have no policy or standards for pe holding people in civilian detention. So do we need people on the inside who have the capacity to say, wait a second, and we had, there was, we, I mean, taxpayers had somebody there in the um, perspective of Dora Schreiro, who worked mm -hmm. under uh, Janet Napolitano to look at civil detention. At the same time, um, how do I want to say this? I'll say it off the record, um, is what I'll say. Um, so I have to tell you that when you just simply address a group of people and say, <laughs> oh, God. All right, well, let me, okay. Know, let's not be too delusional. I think that the knowledge, we interviewed somebody for the front line who worked in, uh, in immigration first at, at INS and then at ICE. He trained the lawyers for ICE on how to basically close cases <coughs> because what you need is numbers. You need the numbers because it's always about the numbers because the numbers is how you get your funding. And all I can tell you is that when he spoke to us, he is now out of the business, um, is independent, and he was a man in tears. In tears. In tears. Because he said, how could I have been behind a policy that had has really no basis and what we are doing is um, destroying families. So. So we need them, but you know you have to make your own decisions about how what you can live with, what you can live with. How do you see this issue affecting the presidential election? Oh my God! Um, I mean, in the most basic sense, you, we all may be facing a real challenge to um, participatory democracy on the part of Latinos. Um, which should be of concern to all of us, because if you have the fastest growing demographic group in your country feeling like they don't want to go and vote, this is a huge problem. Again, not just for Latinos, but for all of us. That is a primary concern because many in the Latino community feel very, feel like President Obama has turned his back on the promise to resolve immigration, because the truth is, is that this president has detained and deported more people than any other president in history. So that's a problem. Um, I think that the way it, we're not, it's really not like on the top front burner right now. And I suppose that's good only because then we don't have the massive vitriol. But the problem is, is that as long as this issue is not resolved, again, and I'm coming back to facts and not on any kind of like pro-immigrant, like, you know, reunite families and forget that. <coughs> Actually, our American economy will continue to stagnate. And so I look at it from a numbers perspective. And every day that we are not talking about this in a sane way, um, it is a loss for our entire country. And I think that this president um, lost an opportunity to be a truly new and creative leader. 
um, of his moment. Um, and and as and quoting Mayor Villarraigosa from Los Angeles, who said recently, Mr. President, there will be no third term. You have to resolve immigration reform in your second term. Um, let me just, if there are any more students. Me. You're a student? student? I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm Rosalia Miller, a mid-career uh, master in public administration, graduation 2012. Right, <laughs> <laughs> um, right. Um, at um, this age, I am a student. Um, so I am. Um, the founder of the Latino Student Fund in Washington, D.C. It's a pre-K to 12 organization. Uh, we are changing lives by helping Latinitos um, achieve the highest possible um, education level. We have 100% graduation rate in, in high school and 100% attendance in college. Um, we deal with, we do not ask whether our students and parents are uh, documented or undocumented. We don't ask that question. But it happens often that they run to us for um, as a refuge, as a, as, a, um, as a protective place where they can unburden their fears. And uh, often um, we experience, um, we listen to very, very sad stories, and all of them are, seem to be surrounded by the fear that any minute something is going to happen to them. You're sure familiar with that. Um, if those, um, so we give them hope. We try to help them in the legal way and all of those good things. But if those mothers and fathers and those children were sitting right here, occupying this space, um, Maria, what kind of hope, what would you tell them that's ahead for them in their lives? Oh, they're fuzzy. Another easy question. Um, Rosalia, actually, I appreciate what you do, but when you say that we give them all the legal help that we can, the people who are here, your students and their parents, the reality is that as you know, there is very little that you can do, which is another untold story. I love the question that I got when I was giving a lecture uh, at the University of Colorado Boulder. A student just raised her hand and said, you know, I don't understand. Why? I, and I know you've heard it before, but this the way she asked the question just kind of struck me. She was like, why do they choose to, to come across the border through the fence or through the river, like why don't they just go and stand in line and get the permit? <laughs> and it's like because there is no line, there is no door, there is no line, and there is no, frankly, legal help for the great majority of these families. So when you ask about hope, it's like, híjole, um, I don't know. Again, this is a question that us, as a as a country, beyond the immigration well, isn't it, isn't, issue, isn't it political hope with these numbers that you were citing? Not immediately. <coughs> I mean, if, if you know, at what cost? Oh my God! At what cost? We are raising in our country a generation of American citizens are being raised in fear. Generation of American citizens, not their their parents, are in fear. We know that. It's the children who are American citizens who walk around feeling entirely disenfranchised. And they're American citizens. What does this mean for all of us? It's a strange thing. I mean, it's really going back to the point of, uh, you know, at the height of the civil rights disaster where you had American citizens who were entirely disenfranchised and being set upon by dogs. So, so hope for them? Oh my God, you know? Um, 
and you know, I mean, they come to me and I'm like in tears. And it's like, am I revealing myself? Oh my God, I don't know. Here's this young person who's like, I'm a student and I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm valedictorian and I'm straight A and I don't have papers. And you know what? I haven't published this article. Okay, I'm going to say it. It will be published soon. But it's, I've been sitting on it because, you know, is one of my responses to the dreamers to say, you know, leave. Dream someplace where they want you to dream. Because in this country, they don't want you to dream. So go to Ireland, England, Australia, Germany, donde te quieren, where they want you. Back to Mexico. Oh my God. So, um, giving them hope. You know, they say that uh, if you're an American, it's like you, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Okay, good. So we'll just prove. We can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. But at what cost? Um, Maria, uh, a lot of presidents, uh, Roosevelt, um, uh, Johnson, uh, look to various activists of their year and say, make me do this. Force me to do it. It's common for presidents to say that. Uh, let's do, a, in this talk of uh, it's a pretty bleak picture, let's do a little fantasy camp, political fantasy camp. Let's say it's October. It's a tight election. Uh, the Latino American population is vast and growing. And uh, they're a bit up for grabs in some ways, in terms of some of the, uh, the mix. Let's say the president says to you, all right, what's one thing I can do? One thing I can do that is a signature act that would um, uh, be a marker, and maybe a marker for what, if he wins, will be a refreshed mandate of a first 100 days starting in 2013. What's the one thing I can do? to bring that Hispanic uh, vote, that Latin American vote, my way in terms of immigration policy. Uh, if you had that shot, what would you tell them? Um, I think that's going to happen. Um, so I don't think Great. it's actually political fantasy. But Great. I, I think. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, Even better. <laughs> what would you say? You know, um, I, I'm also, I'm, I'm being a little bit of a contrarian. I know that the compañera Rosalia asked me to be hopeful, but I'm being a little bit of a contrarian because I also feel like, you know, um, we've gotten to a point in our country where this has gone so, so deep to one end that, you know, so we get one thing. And, you know, I, I, don't, I don't mean to say we, but so, so our country gets one thing. A starting point. Okay, I know. That's why I'm telling you. I'm being a contrarian because I should be like, oh, this is great. No, no, no. This I'm with you. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm a pretty hopeless character, no! in case you're wondering. Um, I'm looking for something. Um, you know, I think doable, maybe, though, you know, fool me once, fool me twice, and I've been down this road with the DREAM Act, honestly, and it's really, like, not fun to have your emotions played with. Um, so maybe the DREAM Act. Um, you know, there was an executive order that occurred um, after the Cuban Revolution, and that executive order was that children were not going to be deported um, coming here from Cuba. So when the president says he has no executive authority, that is in fact not true. He is making his own decisions, and he knows that very well. He's a constitutional lawyer, uh, uh, expert. Um, you know, you could say, Halt all deportations. Halt them all. Halt secure communities. 
halt the building of new detention centers, halt it all, because I, as president, have gone and I have seen. Um, and it is un-American what has happened. I hope you get an audience. That's nice it's not going to happen. No, no, it's not going to happen. Well, I mean, do I, am I understanding correctly that effectively you're saying that the Latino community, community not everyone, but a significant big number, Look at this the way Ralph Nader described Al Gore and George W. Bush. There's no difference between them. Therefore, you know, to hell with all of them because there, there's no difference. And so, hypothetically, a Romney administration would be something that would be no different from second No, I think, I think that actually um, in, in the political fantasy world, I think that actually it gets much more interesting than that. Um, I think that the Republican Party um, is in deep throes, and I don't hang out with a lot of politicians, so I'm, I am conjecturing here. Um, I think that there are elements of the Republican Party, those around um, Karl Rove, um, probably Jeb Bush, um, who are talking about um, Latinos and the Republican Party and really trying to figure this one out. Um, I have heard of something that may be coming out of um, Florida, um, a, 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 a ersatz dream act that may be coming out, um, supported by um, Marco Rubio and Jeff Bush. I think that what the Republican Party might be talking about doing in terms of immigration is unresolved. And there could be an equal October surprise, surprise coming from there. You just need to look at what's happening in Utah, interesting things that are happening there under Republican administrations. Um, so, I don't know. Um, but, given the Romney candidacy, I also have to tell you that there is not a lot of hope there. In terms of, I mean, you know, his whole relationship to his family or Mexico, I mean, I don't understand. I think that that really just falls completely flat. So I don't really think you have any leadership. I'm just saying that it could potentially happen. But I do think that the Latino, um, the Latino voter right now is is a very unpredictable one. Yes. Yeah. I'm staff here, and I'm Greek. Um, I just had exposure once in an ICE detention center where it was actually a court wasn't really a, a judge, he was an official judge. But I went there because I had a family friend who was being deported. He came to the country when he was 10 years old. He had a green card, had a dispute, domestic violence. When there's a domestic dispute, regardless if you're a male, you're going to be arrested because he never became a citizen. He's 50 years old. He got deported. And the case, when I was watching it, I felt exactly that, that it, this is un-American. How can this happen? I, I was snuck into the, the the room. Everybody who was in the room was in shackles. Oh, yeah. And the lawyer who was defending him didn't even know my, my friend. He didn't know his case. He didn't defend him properly. It was a, 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 a shut, closed case right after that. He was deported. Was it a real Why don't you expose was it, was what's it a, going on in that detention? Was center? it a real judge? Was it a human being? Yeah, yeah, he was. A, no, I'm not kidding. He you. was, and when I, I stood up and I said, and I was, I was trying to say, he has kids, he has teenage kids. How care. are you ripping him? And the judge actually did care, and he said, "Don't tell me 
about how it's affecting families because he adopted two two children who had their parents who were deported. And right, he, and many he knew right. The judges have their hands tied too. This is why, again, the whole I mean, in terms of leadership on, on the part of a president, which is to say, from top to bottom, the whole thing is just ridiculous. Um, I asked if it was a real judge because the many places you do not actually see a human being; you see a, a television set. He was so the judges never actually see from Boston to yeah. Cape Cod to Pennsylvania to Texas. Which is where his court case was. Do you know where he was in Texas? Yeah. Was it Willisie? No, what's El Paso. He was in El Paso. So, yeah. That is part of what we uncovered in our documentary, but it doesn't really resonate with people that even if you have a green card, you will be detained. And so, you know, one of the things that I talk about when I when I talk to immigrants is I, I ask them, do you have a green I mean, I ask anybody anything, as you know, but in the conversation, it will, you know, do you have a green card? Yes, and then I just say, and this is where, you know, am I advocating? I don't know. Telling people to become American citizens, is that like, I don't know, I think that's pretty American. You know, but I do tell them. I just say, you might want to consider becoming a citizen. Like, immediately because if you think you are safe with a green card you are not at all I'm, I'm a little confused your friend had a green card he did yeah and on what he, basis was he being deported domestic violence makes it i forget what the, the what you, if, if you if you so it, was a, it was like he was charged with a crime was that the idea he, he was charged with domestic violence at, at any point now if you have committed a crime and you hold a, a green card you will be deported it was not that way not even crimes a certain amount of misdemeanors. Right, now misdemeanors. <coughs> right at this point of misdemeanors, um, in fact, being in the country and having crossed more than once is now a crime, a felony. Um, the notion of the Obama administration um, has talked a lot about um, judicial discretion, prosecutorial review. They have. Um, in response in part to the documentary, um, made these moves to soften the reality for people who are detained. But the, what I can tell you factually is that every single person, every detained immigrant who I was allowed to speak with, um, and I was threatened that I would be escorted out of premises if I spoke to certain groups of immigrants. Um, and that's really fun as a journalist in the United States <clears throat> to be threatened by your government. But um, every single one that I spoke to, when I asked them, were you asked if you had American citizen children in this country? But one said that they had been asked that question. So the Obama administration has said that, you know, for those who have children, the question is not being asked. How, how much difference would it make if they had good lawyers as opposed to guys who did not know who the hell they were even representing? Oh, I think it would make a big difference if you had good lawyers, but the point is, is that unless you can pay for a good lawyer, you don't get a lawyer. If you're an immigrant, so you it's, the, not it's not so. So it's the matter of the way the law is applied that is the issue, in part? Well, in in imagine, part? Well, imagine that if you, are, if you are charged criminally in, in this country, you get a lawyer. The lawyer is assigned to you. If you are an immigrant who is in these proceedings, you have no lawyer. So I don't know who his lawyer was, the fact that he had one, because most people do not have lawyers unless they're paying for them. And most people can't afford to pay for these lawyers. 
Also because if you're in Boston, you wouldn't know legal people in Boston, but now you're being held in Texas. Nobody knows you in Texas. How are you going to get a lawyer? If the, phone don't, if the phones don't work, and we know that sometimes the phones don't work, how are you going to call the lawyers? You are right. It is purely un-American. That's what I'm trying to get at. That, you know, having detention centers where you are being fed food with maggots and being raped by guards and not having access to sunlight is un-American. <laughs> I don't care if you have committed a crime or you are being held under civilian, uh, uh, civilian detention. Those conditions are un-American. Um, there will be, there will be, our country already, because of the Organization of American States, has been cited for human rights violations. And I guess I'll go on the record and say there will be a case soon, at some point, in international court. Because what is happening under this president's watch is, um, is again, an affront to Immigrants, not Latinos. We get that. We get it. I know that my son can be questioned, myself, my husband, my family. <clears throat> we get it. But it's an affront to all of us. It's an affront to all of us. I don't think anyone can disagree with that. So, uh, Maria, thank you. Very glad to meet you.